first century Jerusalem and Nazareth was a tricky place to be if you were a young woman. About 60 years before, Rome had invaded Jerusalem. The empire of Rome marched right throughout that whole region and took over. Now, I didn't know any of this until this semester when I did a Christian history unit, and oh my goodness, it's been so exciting to understand. I know, that makes me a real nerd, doesn't it? But that's all right. It's been amazing for me to put into context now the things that are written in the Bible and to understand a little bit more the factors that were at play. Because here we have Mary, this teenager, 14, 15, 16 years old, a young woman. And she's growing up in a time in history where there's this intersection of three cultures like never before. You have the Roman Empire come in and bring with it their legislation, their courts, and their infrastructure. All roads lead to Rome. And that's because all the roads did actually lead to Rome. And all around that peninsula, from the North, North Africa all around into Southern Europe and even into Western Asia, you had cobblestone roads being built for the first time in history. Prior to that, as soon as there was rains, floods, your roads would disappear. And those roads were the width of the Roman chariots. And in fact, our roads today and our train tracks can still be kind of traced back to that era. That's how we decided how big things should be, which is crazy when you think about it. I've never been to Europe. I would love to go, and I especially would love to go now because there are places where you can still see those roads. And that just blows my mind. So we had... Rome come in and they brought in their legal system, they brought in their infrastructure, they brought in their armies, who were the most well-disciplined armies ever, who marched through and built roads and did all those things. But then you also had the Greeks. Now, Greek culture was the culture that Mary would have grown up in. So Greek culture and the great philosophers like Aristotle and Plato, they influenced the thoughts of the people. That was the culture that she grew up in. I have a bone to pick with Aristotle, just quietly, because his idea of woman was that woman was just a deformed man. Yeah, I know. So they had no concept of how babies grew and developed, how gender was determined. They didn't know about chromosomes. They didn't know about any of that. So his thing, being a man, was, well, <laughs> we're pretty perfect. So therefore, if you do not look like us, that means you are a deformed man. Not that you're something different, you're just a lesser version. Ladies, we all have a bone to pick with Aristotle. Because that idea of being less than has actually, in many cultures around the world, and subconsciously, consciously even in Western culture, still existed. So we have got this idea of this young woman growing up in a time where there's um, infrastructure being built, lots of people can now move. But you've also got this culture where women are regarded as lesser citizens. Your testimony was not valid in court if you were a woman. You were the property of your father until he decided who you should marry, and then you became the property of your husband. You had very little agency. 
No one spoke to you in public. A man would not speak to you in public unless you were a lady of the night. That was the only reason a man might speak to you in public. So we have these two cultures clashing a little bit, creating the world that Mary grew up in. But then we have the religious culture as well. And that was the Jewish tradition, the God of Abraham and Isaac, the stories that have been passed down, this rich, rich faith of exile and redemption and exile and redemption and exile and redemption. And in the middle of this, we have this young Jewish girl. Now, she would have gone to the synagogue. She would have been taught by her parents. And she would have known that they were one day looking for a Messiah. And that Messiah was going to be coming from the line of David. And she would have known that her family could trace back to there. Your lineage was so important because that told people who you were. But I think we sometimes forget that in the context of these three influences, the Roman, the Greek, the Jewish, Jewish people were actually an oppressed people. The Bible makes it the predominant religious culture. That's what we read. But it actually wasn't in general society. Paganism was. And in fact, even more than that, emperor worship. So the Roman emperor, as soon as you became an emperor, you were a god. Everyone had to worship you. That's why they put his face on the coins. You became a god. People were expected to bow down. So not only is she a woman, she's a young woman, and she's an oppressed woman because her whole community was under foreign rule. They had been invaded. At that time, there wasn't perhaps so much persecution. That came a little bit later. But it certainly, you were considered insignificant. And there were different rules that applied to different people. I've been reading some of the uh, original sources from like 70 AD and 130 AD and people like Tertullian and all these amazing men again, because, you know, women, our words didn't get written down. They were spoken, let me tell you, they just didn't get written down. And he was talking about, um, there was an exchange, sorry, between a guy called Pliny and the emperor. And they were trying to work out who this new Christian group was. So this is after Jesus' death, resurrection, and probably 50, 60 years later. And Christians are starting to develop into a a bigger, more organized group, and they're a bit concerned. And he talks about, well, if they're a Roman citizen and they recant their faith, we won't execute them. We'll just publicly humiliate them, but we won't execute them. And if they say they're going to bow down to the emperor, well, all's forgiven. But if you are a Jewish person who has become a Christian, you would just be executed no matter what. So of all the unlikely people to be involved in the birth of the Messiah is this young Jewish woman. Not someone of financial means. There's nothing to suggest she came from a wealthy family. She certainly had no influence and she had very little agency in her life. But the Bible records 
the most amazing section of spoken words from a woman, which is the biggest stretch of dialogue from a woman in the New Testament. It's normally called Mary's song, but today I've called it a song of revolution because there is so much that is fierce and powerful about this song. I was talking to my mum this morning and just telling her what I was going to be preaching about, and she said, I don't know if I can remember a sermon on Mary. It's been that long. And I think that sometimes in an attempt to separate ourselves from venerating Mary to the point of elevating her as someone that we pray to, which is clearly not doctrinal in Adventism, that's not from a Protestant view, what we've done is we've thrown Mary out with the bathwater. And we actually don't consider her and her influence enough. I want to speak directly now to the young women in our midst. In many ways, you're different to Mary. You have agency to a point. You are growing up not under foreign rule. But I tell you what, in some ways, our lives and Mary's lives may not be that much different. Women were judged very harshly in a patriarchal society. Girls, I'm guessing that you've experienced that too. You know what it's like to be judged. You know what it's like to feel like you're either not enough or you're too much. And I think that was Mary's experience as well. And yet as we go through this story, I want you to see who Mary is. Because she was not some meek and mild, wimpy, simpering little girl. She was this powerful, fierce woman of God. And you can be that too. Because the same spirit that was in Mary's heart and in Mary's life is available to each one of us today. So let's have a look at this song of revolution. Mary's song is sometimes called a canticle, and that's just a fancy name for a song of praise. Okay? And the other name that you may have heard of is the Magnificat. And Magnificat, it's called that, because, it's not a magnificent cat, although that would be awesome. It's called the Magnificat because in Latin, the first word of this song is translated Magnificat which means magnify your name, okay? So that's what's called the Magnificat. This is the earliest Advent song that is recorded, and it is the earliest song from the Bible to actually be set to music and performed. For literally hundreds, if not thousands of years, this song has been performed. And in some denominations, they perform it regularly as part of their even song. And at Advent, you will hear the Magnificat sung. I googled the Magnificat, to see variations on it. There's everything from a 30-minute concerto written by Johann Sebastian Bach to a Gregorian chant that was actually amazing to modern versions of these words. So this Magnificat, the Song of Mary, is something that traditionally has been really valued by people, valued by Christians, especially at this season of Advent. So let's have a look at Mary's song. We find it in the Gospel of Luke. But before we get to the song, we need to know the context of the song. 
In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, favoured one. The Lord is with you. Favoured one. Had she ever been called favoured one in her life? She would have been the insignificant one. She would have been the overlooked one. She would have been the one that men pushed past in the marketplace. She would have been the one who couldn't even go to court and give a testimony because she was considered to be a liar just by very fact of being a woman. Thanks, Eve. That's how far they trace that back. Greetings, favoured one. The Lord is with you. Not with the emperor sitting in the palace. Not in the powerful prefecture who would have overlooked their whole community. But with you, a peasant girl from Nazareth. God is with you. But she was much perplexed by his words and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. I was reading today someone's interpretation of this. Now, I don't know if this is right or not, but I actually think it's a really interesting thought. Men were not able to speak to women in public because the only person, if you saw a man speaking to a woman, you presumed the woman was a prostitute. That was how it worked. But this man is speaking to her. Is it any wonder that she's perplexed? Is it any wonder that she's pondering what sort of greeting this might be? And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favour with God. And now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. What a beautiful name. You will name him Jesus. Of course, the angel had more to say about this person, Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his ancestor, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. This is a girl under foreign rule with an emperor who can say off with your head and it happens. She's powerless. And yet in the way the angel speaks to her, she's favoured. God is with her and the child is going to reign over the house of Jacob forever. Can you imagine how mind-blowing that was for her? Can you imagine how trapped she probably felt in her own life? And suddenly, here's someone, not just someone, an angel saying, things are about to change. Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I'm a virgin? The angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be holy He will be called the Son of God. So we're still talking about Jesus, and Mary's like, ah, (laughs) small problem. Not quite sure how to address this, but no, not possible. And the angel says, leave it with God. 
Don't think about what's possible. Just trust what I'm telling you. And then he gives her a reason to trust. And I think this is really important because I don't believe God calls us to blind faith. He calls us to a reasoned faith. He wants us to wrestle with our faith. Our faith needs to have roots that go down deep and that only comes from that wrestling. And he gives Mary evidence. And now your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month for her who was said to be barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. Wait a minute, he's just talked about her cousin. Can you imagine if someone came up to you in an age before social media where, where, you know, six degrees of separation, where you ever met someone who knows someone that you know and you didn't know that they knew that person and you kind of go, wait, no way, so how do you know that person? Facebook's great for that because they'll suggest mutual friends and whatever. But that wasn't like this. This was a time where travelling was an effort. You could be born in a town grow up in that town and die in that town. Mary lived away. And yet this angel is saying, sorry, Elizabeth lived away. I know your cousin, Elizabeth. And not only that, guess what? She's having a baby. I just can't imagine how Mary's poor brain dealt with the onslaught of information. Listen to her response. She had a choice, you see. God values freedom more than obedience. And the reason I know that is because he put the tree of knowledge of good and evil in that garden. If he valued obedience, if he wanted robots, he could have made robots, but he didn't. Mary actually could have said no. I really honestly believe that. Because otherwise, this is not a God of love speaking. Mary could have said no. But she didn't. She said, Here am I, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. Then the angel departed from her. Does that sound to you like someone who's timid? And, oh, I'm not sure. That's the image of Mary that I've grown up with. I've grown up with this idea of Mary being this, oh, yes, okay, all these things happen to her as opposed to her embracing the process, her partnering with God in this scary, impossible, unbelievable thing that he was doing. She was brave. She was fierce. And she had a ferocious faith because you have to have faith to say that. Here am I. Let it be as you have said. These are her two responses. The only thing she says, how can it be? And here I am. How can it be? I don't know. Okay, I trust the answer. Here I am. I had a how can it be moment. About 14 years ago, having kids was a long, convoluted process for us. And we went through IVF, and all up, we took about five years of treatments and investigations and doctors, and I hate to think how many thousands of dollars. 
And then after we'd had Sam, we had to start all over again. And we had an embryo. And you get a picture of your embryo, and I couldn't find it, but it's just like this little circle with a bunch of circles inside it. And we had one embryo put back. And we went to have a scan, and Mike was sitting just kind of outside the curtain. My doctor was scanning me, and she said, my darling, there's two. How can it be? How can it be? We only had one put back. Like, we were not counting on twins. This was not part of the plan. Mike, from behind the curtain, goes, what? <laughs> and then he said, I'll be out in the hallway lying down. <laughs> that was me at 36 weeks pregnant with the twins. I carried them to 38 weeks. They were six pound four and six pound eight. How can it be? And then, here I am. I will not only do this, I will absolutely embrace the joy that comes from this. Now, oh, I don't remember them being that little. That was the day they were born. And sometimes they looked like this. That was their first Christmas. But I have to tell you, most of the time, they look like this. <laughs> they were not happy babies. And there were times when I went, can I change my mind, God? Here am I. How can it be, here am I? This is a song of revolution that we're getting to. Because after all of that, Mary goes to visit Elizabeth. Elizabeth is six months pregnant, and the Bible says Mary goes in haste. She hurries. And she gets there, and Mary hugs her, and the baby in her womb jumps. Now, mums who've had parent, yeah, mums who've had babies, have you ever felt that? You know when they do that like whole like, oh. We went to a friend's graduation at Amberley Air Base when I was about 39 weeks pregnant with Sam, and an F-111 took off. That baby? <laughs> Bear leapt, and I'm holding my belly going, it's okay. <laughs> this is what happened to Elizabeth. She recognized that Mary, as early pregnant as she was, was carrying the Son of God. That's a Holy Spirit moment. There's no way she could have known that. And that then leads into Mary's song. And Mary sings this. She sings it. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour, for he has looked with favour on the lowliness of his servant. Surely from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He's filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. Can you see the culture that I was talking about at the start? You can see the Roman Empire being addressed in this. He's going to bring down the mighty. You can see faith being addressed. He's going to 
fulfill the promise to Abraham. You can see the Jewish part of her being addressed, the servant of Israel in remembrance of his mercy. This song encapsulates her experience. Just quickly, there are a lot of parallels in this song to Psalms. Now, I haven't got all of them here, but I have got a couple I want to share with you. Because Mary clearly knew the Psalms, and the Psalms would have been sung, just like we sing. She would have grown up singing those songs. And in her moment where she was overwhelmed by the Spirit of God, overwhelmed with what was happening, those are the things that came out of her lips. And she made them her own. I love this one. Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. But in Psalm 34, verses 2 to 3, David says, my soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Do you know when that psalm was written? It's one of my favorite stories of David. So after David pretended to be crazy to avoid Abimelech, I think it was. And he's like at the city gates being chased by Saul. And he knew that Saul was going to capture him and he needed to get away. And so he literally pretended to be crazy. He drooled at the mouth. He scratched at the door. He tore his fingernails. Crazy. Do you reckon Mary might have thought that that was crazy, what was happening to her? Is that why she chose that one? Because it's equal levels of impossible. You know, my soul magnifies the Lord. Psalm 35, 9. She says, my spirit rejoices in God, my saviour. Then my soul shall rejoice in the Lord, exulting in his deliverance. There's a lot of parallels in the original language that probably aren't reflected quite as well when you translate them. But we have got a number of times. For he's looked with favour on the lowliness of his servant. Surely from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly. But the haughty, oh, we had that word a couple of weeks ago. He perceives from far away. And there's one more. For the mighty one has done great things for me and holy is his name. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. Can you see that she's pulling from resources that she has developed over her life? This is not a, oh, I don't know anything and God's chosen me. This is, I have been putting down strong roots of faith. I have been worshipping. I have been educated. Parents. We have an obligation to sing of the goodness of God with our children. And her parents, who don't really get a mention, they must have done an amazing job raising this young woman. This is a song of revolution. It's not just a, oh, yay me, I get to carry the saviour. It is a song of revolution, of change. These are the things she sings about. God has scattered the proud. Now, Brenda, your little thing this morning about God did, God will. Are you sure you didn't look at my notes? Because this is what this is. God did this and he will do it. She's speaking this as like an eternal present tense thing. So God did do that. He did scatter the proud multiple times through Israel's history, and he's going to scatter the proud. He brought down the powerful. Nebuchadnezzar springs to mind. Now we've got emperors 
who need to be brought down. Emperors who are not godly people, who are not doing what is right in God's sight. He lifted the lowly. Have you ever known God to choose the one who's the most obvious person? King David, the runt of the family. Yet he was the one that was chosen. And he continues. Now, this is a present tense, permanent thing that keeps on happening. God lifts the lowly. Filled the hungry with good things. There were hungry people back then. And there was no social services. There were probably no soup kitchens. What did you do if you were hungry? Well, you begged. Or you died. But we've got hungry people today. In many ways, our society is more disconnected than ever because we've lost that whole family unit. We've lost that intergenerational connection of grandparents who used to live with the, in the house with the grandchildren and you know that, that tight-knit community that looks after each other. Sent the rich away empty. Whew. That's a bit harsh. I don't think the Bible tells us we shouldn't have wealth. What it does say is we have an obligation and a responsibility that comes from being wealthy. And I would like to suggest that as people living in Australia, by world standards, all of us fall into that category. But look at what this is. This is not just some song. This is a call to a revolution. This is a call for not just God to do this, this work in Mary, not just for Jesus to do this, but for each one of us to do this. To lift up the lowly, to feed the hungry, to be aware of our own riches and willingly share and give. This was not a meek and mild Mary this was a revolutionary Mary who risked her life and her reputation to partner with God in the most amazing way. She knew there was nothing special about her. She called herself lowly. She knew that there was nothing different about her. The only difference was she was prepared to put her trust in God and to say, yes, here I am. How can it be? Here I am. You might be in a how-can-it-be situation right now. God might have got something on your heart that makes no sense. Believe me, I know what that feels like. Four years ago, I got a call from God, not a call, but you know, this total, total call on my heart that made no sense at all to study theology. I'm married to a pastor. No one needs two pastors in the family. Like, that's just ridiculous. It literally made no sense. And I fought and I fought and I fought because I was trying to make sense of something that I couldn't make sense of. And in the end, I was a bit slower than Mary, I think. I think she adapted much quicker than I did. I went, okay, God, here I am. Here I am. I still don't know how God's going to use that theology degree. I've got two more years left. I don't know how God's going to use that, but I hope it's to bring a revolution. And I hope it's this revolution of love and grace and mercy. And if we think that we can separate social justice issues from our Christianity, we're wrong. 
This is not just a woke kind of contemporary feel-good thing. We are called to this. This should be the outworking of our faith. That's why I love that we did the carols program last night. That was community. That was designed not for us, not for us who come to church every Saturday morning and and are blessed by the most incredible musicians, the most incredible talent in this church. It wasn't for us. It's so we can, over the years, build it up, send out flyers, letterbox drop, get the local people coming in, the mainly music families who were here last night. That's what that's about. Mary was living at a time of foreign rule, a different thought culture, and a persecuted religion. I would like to suggest that we have way much more freedom and are protected in the laws of the land than Mary was. But I tell you what, there are some similarities. And if this 14, 15, 16-year-old girl has the courage and the bravery to stand up and say, here I am, then what's stopping us? And it doesn't matter how old you are. God still can use you in some way. Too often we have a picture of Mary like this. And can I just say, how whitewashed do we make Bible characters? There is no way that Mary looked like that. She's from the Middle East. She would have had the most beautiful olive skin, possibly even black skin, depending upon how far, whichever direction she lived. But we have Mary like this, when in actual fact, we should have her more like this. This is a woodcut that a guy made recently, a contemporary artist. She's casting down the mighty, send the rich away, fill the hungry, lift the lowly. She's standing on the serpent because that is symbolic of redeeming what happened in the Garden of Eden. She's got a foot on the, on the serpent and she's got a hand in the air because this was a revolution. And she was not going to sit back and waste this opportunity that God had given to her. The Bible mentions Mary on and off. And we remember her for this song, which was a song of praise for who God is and a song of thanksgiving for what he's going to do. It was a song of revolution. And if the history books and the people at the time who recorded history recorded the women's version of events, Mary would be highlighted through all these pages. She was there. She was part of Jesus' ministry. She was there when he was a boy and she knew probably even before he fully did. And as a mother, imagine knowing what was going to happen to your son. I don't think she fully understood because I think she was still thinking he's going to sit on the throne here and fix it right now rather than sit on the throne in heaven and fix it forever. And then she was there when he was crucified. She was there and she watched her son suffer and die. But she was there because she continued to say, how can it be? And here I am. Those are the two things she did her whole life. And I can't wait till we get to heaven and we can talk to Mary 
And we can hear about what it was like and what she actually did because there's even certain historians believe that she continued her ministry even after Jesus died and that she accompanied some of the disciples. And she went around after Jesus' resurrection and his ascension and she went around preaching the gospel. This was not an insipid, timid, scared young girl. She was not Mary Meek and Mild. She was Mary the Revolutionary. And this Christmas, we have a chance to join that revolution. We have a chance to lift up the lowly, to feed the hungry. We have a chance to call out in our young boys and our young girls the God-given gifts, the calling that God might have placed on their hearts. You don't know when you go up to a teenager and say to them, I see in you this gift. You don't know what that might do for the fruit in their lives. This is not just Mary's song. It's a song of revolution. It's a song to cast down the mighty and to lift up the lowly. And that's my prayer that each one of us will be able to say to God, how can it be? And here I am. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for Mary. We thank you for this young woman who was filled with wisdom and and courage. We thank you that her words are recorded, Lord, and that they are a call to revolution. We thank you, Lord, for what you have done and give you praise and glory for that. And Lord, we can't wait to see what you will do and are doing. We thank you for each of the person, each of the people here, Lord, and their individual journey with you. And Lord, if anyone's got a calling on their heart and they're saying, how can it be? Lord, I just pray that they might have the courage of Mary to be able to say, here I am. And Lord, I especially wanted to pray for the young women in our church. I pray that they won't be constrained by the fear of people judging them, but they will step into the fullness of who you've called them to be. And Lord, as a church, may we be inspired, not just by the words of Mary, but by the faith of Mary. And Lord, may we too join the revolution of bringing the good news to the hurting. Amen.